So obviously there's a, there's a disconnect here. <laughs> and as um, Christ followers, as disciples of Jesus, we've got to figure this out. Now Jesus said, a new commandment I give you to love one another as I have loved you. And by this, they will know that you are my disciples. And yet the world sees this. This is what they see from us. This is bullhorn guy. This is the world screaming in their face that um, the best they can hope for is an eternity of damnation and hell. Now, as we're looking through this, some of us are saying, well, but some of that's kind of true. Well, yeah, but you know what? I don't know that anyone has ever come to Jesus through that, ever. Once again, Jesus said the same thing over and over again. A new commandment I give you. To love one another as I have loved you, by this the world will know that you are my disciples. Well, today marks the third week uh, in our series called What is a Christian? And what we've discovered so far is that uh, the word Christian was first used in the first century as a title or description. It was only used three times in the New Testament. A title or description of a group of Jesus followers, but they were called that from people outside the church. So a Christian or believers themselves did not call themselves Christians, but those outside the church called them Christians. Now the name that the Jesus followers called themselves was what? A disciple, right. A disciple. Now the reason this is such a big deal is that, as we've said over and over again, that Christian can be defined any way you want it to be defined. You will find Christians who say they are Christians because they live in America or because they believe in God or because they go to church, or because their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents were Christians. All kinds of different reasons why people call themselves Christians. But disciple? Now that's a very specific, very narrow description. Now the reason this is such a big deal is that you can find on every side of every argument... Uh, every side of political issue, legal issue, every battle, every educational issue, wherever you find conflicts, world wars, international conflict, you find Christians on both sides. That's because Christians don't really know who they are or what they believe. Well, you think, well, if everybody's a Christian, why not? Why can't we just all get along? Why can't we all get on the same page of these different issues? But uh, the disciple? That's what the people of the way called themselves, a disciple. And, and, and the definition is very narrow. It means that you were a follower of someone, in this case, a follower of Jesus. And it's not just a follower, but it's the kind of person that would say, Jesus, when I come to a question about what I, what, how I should live my life, what I should do with money, how I deal with sex, how I deal with finances, how I deal with my job, how I deal with my family, when it comes to all of those questions, Jesus, I'm going to ask you first, how should I do this? What way should I live? How should I approach this situation? And as a disciple, before you even get the question out of your mouth and before Jesus can answer you, and the answers are found here, before Jesus can even answer you, your response to his response is this. 
Yes. Whatever you say, I'm in. I'm a follower of Jesus. My answer is yes. It may be uncomfortable. I may not understand it. It may be different than I've ever experienced before. But my answer to you is yes. That is a disciple. And that's very hard. That's very difficult. Many of you, well, I shouldn't say many, several of you in this service and the second service have come to me after one of these messages and have said the same thing. I really want to be a disciple, but I'm scared. That's, that's the exact appropriate response that you should have. How do you think the disciples felt, the 11 of them, as they were around the Last Supper and they gathered and Jesus gave this commandment, this new commandment that supersedes and overarches every other commandment that was ever given, this new commandment? Now, over the years, being a Christian has become about what you believe. And there's nothing wrong with that because believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But the word believe is not just, yeah, I kind of believe it. It's something deep in here. But when you open the New Testament, being a follower of Jesus is much more than just what you believe. But it's um, who you believe and what you did with that belief. So about a year ago... I'm on the um, executive board of the Pacific Southwest Conference. That's the conference that covers, in our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church. The conference, California, Arizona, Nevada, Hawaii. Why can't I get a gig there? Uh, you know, you know and, and so it covers those western states. And so we were meeting our executive board, and we met in Palo Alto, California. And for an outing, our superintendent, Paul Wilson, took, there's about 20 of us, took us to a church. It was a Friday night. It was a Lutheran church. Of course, the church was closed on Friday night. And we just stood there out in the kind of the guard or the, the yard uh, by this Lutheran church in downtown Palo Alto. And Paul read us an excerpt from a book. And the excerpt was, and I'll just paraphrase it, was something like this. It was about a little boy who was 12 years old that was taking confirmation in this Lutheran church. His parents were active in the church. And little boy found in Life magazine, some of you are old enough to remember uh, those pictures in Life magazine of a malnourished child, right? Or, you know, a monk setting himself on fire, any number of these visions that we still have in our heads. And in this case, it was a picture of a little child from Africa that was suffering from malnutrition. And so this little boy, this 12-year-old, took his, this picture to a Sunday school class and said to his teacher, what about this? How does this fit with what we believe. And the teacher said, well, you're really too young to understand that. You're just supposed to believe. Don't worry about that. You know, God will take care of that kind of stuff. And a very unsatisfactory answer to an inquisitive 12-year-old. Well, after the service, uh, he did it again. He went up to the, the pastor and he showed the picture. He said, I don't, I don't get this. How does this happen? How does this fit with the loving God and with the God that you preach about on Sunday? I don't get this. Can you help me understand this? And again, the pastor said the same kind of song and dance. Well, you're really too young, enough, too young to understand. You don't really have enough education. You don't have enough theology in you to understand. And besides, you're just supposed to believe. Well, that 12-year-old boy was Steve Jobs. And um, as you know, he later became one of the wealthiest and mo- most influential people in the world. He just died a few years ago. Uh, but this Steve Jobs recognized that there's a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we actually do, how we actually live our lives. And that was very uncomfortable for him. In his, bio, in his autobiography, he wrote this phrase. 
the juice goes out of Christianity when the emphasis is on faith rather than living like Jesus lived or seeing the world like Jesus saw it. Now that's from a a non-believer's perspective, but that's a really important perspective because that's what the world is saying, those people that held up those signs, that's what the world looks at us and says, that's what you believe. That's what you've been telling us for 1,700 years. That's what you believe, that we're all going to hell and you're pretty much okay with it. Somehow, someway, we've got to get away from this disconnect. I believe, and believe and faith, pistuo, the actual meaning of belief, is what we really need. But Jesus said, let me be very clear. No ambiguity about this. What it means to be a follower of Jesus or to be his disciple is summarized in this one passage. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. All men will know that you are my, what? Disciples if you love one another. John 13, 34, and 35. You're going to get sick of this passage by the time we're done, but you'll, it'll be in your head. So, not Christians, but disciples. This is how you know that you are who you say you are, by how you love each other and how you love the world outside of us. Today, and next, in fact, today and next Sunday, I'm going to look at what it means to love Practically, because I know some of you even asked me, but some of you are thinking, okay, this guy, we don't even know him. He's from Phoenix after all, you know. And he's telling us that we're supposed to love, love, love. Big deal. He grew up in the 60s. Of course he says that, right? No, listen, listen, listen. This is Jesus talking. This isn't me talking. This is Jesus talking. And uh, when we say, when I say, I know when I say you're supposed to love each other, you have all of these, yeah, but what about this? But what about that? I mean, it's kind of the Yabbat theology. You all have some a little, a little bit of the Yabbat theology. Yeah, but, but what about this? But what about this guy that did this to me? Or what about this parent that, that abused me? Or what about this or that? Or the, yeah, I understand. Those are, there's a lot of Yabbats. I understand that. But we're going to talk in this general idea so that you'll be able to answer the specific questions. So today we're going to look at what it means to love practically and specifically what it means to love practically inside the church, but I want to spend most of my time on what it means to love practically outside the church because they're the ones that are looking at the signs. They're the ones that are listening to Bullhorn Guy. They're the ones that are looking at the church and saying, you guys can't even get along with yourselves. So how are we supposed to be part of you? How, how, why should we be part of you? So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, to look at those around us who are not followers of Christ, who have not said yes to Jesus. Today, um, a look at something that the church has missed, seemingly. Now, some of you, once again, might be offended when I'm saying that please listen through till the end of the message. Because when followers of Jesus, when disciples, that group of us who were eventually called Christians, when we try and leverage anything other than love, we lose influence. Let me say that again. When followers of Jesus, disciples, that group of us who are eventually called Christians, when we try and leverage anything other than love, we lose influence. What happened in history, the church got too powerful, and we decided that we could use other things than love. So we started using politics, and we started using money, and we started using buildings, big, amazing cathedrals throughout the world. And we started using uh, educational leverage. All of these things we started using. So 
when Jesus is ready to leave the building, right? When he's ready to exit, when he's ready to ascend to heaven. His last meeting with his disciples in that uh, upper room. You know, they took communion and they, uh, and these were when Jesus was giving. Here's the last thing that Jesus said to his disciples. Kind of their marching orders along with John 13. This is what they said, Matthew 28. Um, Tim referred to it in his prayer. Therefore, go and make disciples, there's our word again, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Make disciples. That phrase means to call someone to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying, listen, I want you to go out and act in such a way and speak in such a way and love in such a way that the world would be caused to say, you know what, I want some of that. I want to, that person that lives and loves like that, I want that. That's what our call was to go and make disciples. Not to go to Hawaii 150 years ago and make them wear Western clothes. But to go and make disciples by living and loving in such a way that they say, I want Jesus. I want you to go out and act in such a way, to speak in such a way, to love in such a way that people would want to become followers of Christ. Now, for the first 300 years of our Christian history, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. But as time went on, the church became organized and everything began to change. Because Jesus was always wanting us to do the same thing. Listen, I want you to, to, to love such a way and live in such a way and die in such a way because many of these early Christian followers died a martyr's death. I want you to do that in such a way so that they would look at you and say, see how they love one another. See how those husbands treat their wives when everybody else is not treating them well. See how those teenagers interact with each other. See how that person works for that boss and with such integrity and honesty. See how they love each other. See how they live their lives. Now again, for 300 years, this is the way they lived and loved and died. Now, as you know, a little bit of history. Uh, Constantine, born in about 280, uh, came to power in the early 300s. He was the one that kind of organized officially and made Christianity legal. He was, it was on the heels of uh, Diocletian. Diocletian was one of the worst to um, uh, persecute Christians and kill Christians. And, and Constantine was the one who said, okay, we're going to put a stop to that. That's not doing any good because the more we persecute these Christians, what? The bigger the group gets. <laughs> Every time we kill one, 12 others spring up over here. You know, and so, you know that, that's not working. So he said, we're going to legalize Christianity, the Edict of Milan. We're going to legalize Christianity which was kind of a good idea. But, but remember, and you already know this instinctively, when you tell your kids they can't do something, they want to do the opposite. And, and don't be mad at your kids, you did the same thing when you were 14, okay? And when you tell your kids that they have to believe in something, they don't want to believe in that something, right? And that's exactly what happened here. Before, you, you can't be a Christian, If you're a Christian, we're going to throw you in Nero's circus and kill you. We're going to have animals eat you. We're going to make you miserable, make your whole movement die. Well, the movement kept growing, growing. By this point in 300, there were probably over a million believers uh, in in Asia and parts of Europe. Already over a million. 
And thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, have been killed. So here he's saying, well, we're not going to do that anymore. That's not working. So let's make it legal. And and then after that, a little bit while later, instead of making it legal, they made it what? Mandatory. Making Christianity mandatory is infinitely worse than making it uh, illegal. I mean, we know that, right? We've seen it. And so now all of a sudden, and Constantine, one of his uh, armies was going to go out and fight a battle. And uh, he wanted to baptize them before they went into battle. So these men, uh, uh, he, he walked them down to a, a lake or a pond, I don't know which. And he said, I want you guys all to walk into the water and be baptized. But when you walk into the water, one thing I want you to do is hold your swords out of the water. We don't want your swords baptized. We want you baptized. We don't... So what kind of a message is that giving to... First of all, they're told that they have to be Christians. That doesn't make you a Christian to be told you're a Christian because a Christian can mean anything you want it to be. They were told to be that, and yet it really had no effect on their lives at all. It was like, okay, let's, let's have a new mandate for the world. And here's what the new mandate would say. Therefore, go and impose my teachings and values on all nations threatening them with judgments and destructions if they don't buy everything I've commanded you. That would have been kind of the new mantra under Constantine and for the next 1,700 years. So the church has all kinds of leverage. It has all kinds of power. And guess what? It entered into something we called what? For a 1,000 years. The Dark Ages. It was dark because Christianity had nothing to do with discipleship. It had nothing to do with loving Jesus and loving people and loving the world. That's how it started to feel. An imposition, a threat, a judgment if you don't conform. A big change. Now what happened, let me give you another kind of visual of what happened. First 300 years, the church, the only power they had was what I would call a power under Uh, the kind of power that Jesus showed when he walked into the upper room and he started washing feet, right? He showed a lot of power and leadership there, but he did it by serving underneath. Starting with Constantine and for a thousand years, well, actually for 1,700 years after that, the church is power over. Do what I say or you have to pay indulgences to get your relatives out of purgatory. Do what I say, be baptized or give money are you going to hell? Do what I say. And all of this was going on for a thousand years. It's been going on all that time because the church then has power over people. Jesus was always the same. The way Jesus approached things was power under. I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to make a difference in your life. Paul had the same kind of philosophy. Here's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.19. Though I am free and belong to no man... Listen, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Isn't that amazing? I make myself a slave to win as many as possible. It's that kind of idea of power under. How can I serve? How can I love? So that you see how I live and love and die and say, I want that. I want that Jesus. I don't want the Jesus I see in a lot of churches. I want that Jesus. So I was thinking about what this looks like. So um, when I met Sherry, I was a senior in college. She was a freshman in college. And uh, I, 
my goal was to win her, okay? Kind of like, you know, winning a prize or something. And what I discovered was you, you can't win something that precious and that important by using power over. You've got to fall in love with me because you've just got to and just kind of power over. No, what I did is I kind of slipped into this without even knowing it, this idea of power under. So I would serve Sherry, things that I didn't even think about before. How can I show her that I love her? So how can I serve her? I mean, I would talk on the phone for an hour, which the previous year I hadn't talked on the phone for an hour to anyone altogether, and yet I would do that. Now, sometimes, granted, I would fall asleep when we were talking on the phone, but the point is I did that because I wanted to win her, and I felt the best way to win her was serving her. Serving. And even today, after 47 years of marriage, sometimes we get stuck, we get in a little funk or something. We say, okay, let's go back to, or let's reset, and here's how we reset. Who's going to outserve each other? And of course, I'm going to win, because that's what I do, is win. <laughs> Who's going to outserve each other? See, Paul said, I'll place myself under them. I'll be a slave in order to win them. Somewhere along the way, the church decided not to leverage love one another power under, but to do it the world's way, power over. Whenever the church, whenever disciples choose to leverage anything else but love, the church loses, and worse yet, the world loses. The gospel loses, as Steve Jobs said, its juice, its power. Now, I want to dig deeper into a text. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5. And uh, this is a passage I'd like you to live with this week. Uh, there's a lot in it. In fact, I could preach a whole series on 1 Corinthians 5 alone. But we're going to look at this passage. And let me give you a little background. Um, Corinth was kind of like the world's Las Vegas. You know, what, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know, that kind of deal. You know. And it was, a, it was a decadent city. It was immoral. It was just awful. And, and yet... Paul had established these little small ecclesias or Christ groups, Christ-following groups, small churches in homes around Corinth, and they were starting to grow and people were coming to faith in Jesus and trying to figure out, okay, now how do I live in Corinth, right, and still be a Christ follower? And and so uh, Paul kind of drops us into a juicy part of one of these little churches. Problem had arisen. And... uh, and when you read this passage, you're going to say, man, I need to read my Bible more often because this really is juicy. You know? So let's drop in on this and see. And Paul's talking about how we're going to win or influence people, both inside and outside the church, non-followers and followers. And so let's read the first couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 5. Um, it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you. Okay? And of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. So this, there's this man living in sin with his stepmother. And what Paul is saying is, even the pagans say that's gross. You know? And you guys have it right in the middle of your church, and you're saying that's okay. No, that's not okay. I mean, even the world knows. I mean, we have our, our moral Jesus standards in the church, but... The moral standards out in the world are down here, but this is way below that. This just can't happen. And so he's saying, this is not the kind of behavior that believers, disciples, have kind of signed off on. 
Because when we sign up to be a disciple, we're saying what to Jesus? We're going to follow the Bible. We're going to follow what you tell us, and we're going to say yes to everything that we read. So we have signed up for this moral kind of level, this spiritual, moral, ethical way of living. We have said, yes, I'm into that. Well, this guy wasn't doing that at all. So now in the early church, there was these groups were probably 25, 30 people. So you kind of, everybody kind of knew what was going on in everybody's life. You know, unlike a, a church like Grace or uh, you know, any medium-sized or large church where you can go and you can kind of remain anonymous and say, wow, I can get away with sin and nobody would know it. That's cool. You know? But that wasn't happening in those days. So look, let's, let's look at verses 2 and 3. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this, kind of this rotten apple, set him aside? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. And I'd say, I'd say well, wait a second, wait a minute, Paul. Wait, just a minute. The Bible says we're not supposed to judge. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Everybody's favorite verse, right? Uh, you want to judge everybody, but you don't want anybody judging you. So, okay, so, whoa, Paul, wait a minute. You know, how dare you? <laughs> oh, that's right, you're writing the Bible, so I can't say how dare you, Paul. Uh, so, we're, but we're confused. We're confused. What is it? Yes or no? Judge this guy or not judge this guy? Now, this is important. The Bible does not teach us not to judge, but who to judge. Let me say that again. The Bible does not teach us uh, not to judge, but who to judge. This is where we get confused. This is why people outside the church are leery of us. They don't get us. They don't understand us, okay? Because we haven't done this very well. So, verses 4 and 5. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Now, Paul's saying, okay, this is like an extreme thing, because this guy's really a goofball. I mean, this guy's, the moral standard is way down here. Even pagans don't behave like this. You've got to remove this guy, not for the sake of getting rid of him, or throwing him under the bus, but for the purpose of him feeling the full weight of his sin, coming to repentance, coming back to faith, coming back to the church so he might be saved. So that's what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying just judge somebody and throw them out of the church and just leave them. That, that's never the case in Scripture. But he's saying, but something's going on here. Now, the legal term, um, when he says, um, when you're assembled in the name of Jesus, hand this man over to Satan, that's a legal term. That means give this guy into Satan's custody, into the devil's custody. In other words, there's a new parole officer if you have any questions, call Satan, right? That kind of a deal. And, and so that's what, what he's saying here. This guy has chosen to follow Satan's plan, and so let him have it, okay? If he's a true believer, he's going to come back to his faith and repent and restore, and he's going to make amends and get back and be back in the fellowship and all of that. But for now, Satan is his parole officer. You need just to put him over here. So now here's my best guess at what's going on here. If you choose this kind of lifestyle or this kind of lifestyle that is absolutely opposite to what the scripture teaches, if you choose this lifestyle, you can't show up and drink coffee and act like everything's okay. Besides, you know it's wrong. You let it run its course. You let the person be repentant and come back. In fact, we do that, and I I just added this this morning, so it's not going to be on the screen. But you know this passage in Galatians 6.1. Paul wrote this too, right? Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, that's what happened to this guy, um, 
you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. Sometimes that means separating them from you for a while. Let them feel the full weight of their sin. But the purpose is to gently and humbly help that person back into the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. So we're not talking about throwing people under the bus. The purpose is always reconciliation. That's always the heart of God. That's always the heart of Jesus. That's always the heart of Paul. So he feels the weight of his sin, then he can come back. So now after this, uh, because by the way, the wages of sin is what? Death, okay? And death, another word for death is addiction. And there's all kinds of things that shows us that if we say, yes, Satan, I'm going to be on your team now, um, and, we, and we choose that, we have to separate that person for a time and let them experience Satan as their parole officer. See how that works out, okay? Hopefully, if they're a true disciple, they'll come back. So we go on in uh, verses 9 to 13. This is really critical. You need to hear this. Because he's talking about now how we deal with somebody inside the church. Now he's going to shift gears and talk about people outside the church. Listen very carefully. I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, you guys have signed off on this baseline of of morality and ethics. Jesus' way of teaching about sex and money and all that. You've signed off. This is what your base is of living. This is why you should be living. Verse 16. Not at all meaning the people of this world. I'm not talking about the people out there. I'm talking about you. You've signed off on this, right? Um, not talking about the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. If you had to only face believers, you know, that's just not going to happen. But now I am writing, listen very carefully, verse 11. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slander, a drunkard or a swindler. Set them aside for, re- for restoration. With such a man, do not even eat. Verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Uh-oh. <laughs> All of those visuals we saw in the video at the beginning of the sermon were all people judging people outside the church. Constantly hammering, judging, condemning, swearing. You're bad. I mean, uh, you know, remember that gay got AIDS yet? How cruel and un-Jesus-like is that? How wicked is that for the church somehow to communicate that message to the world? He said, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. He says, I'm expecting you to pass judgment on each other. And when I say pass judgment, that takes a whole other sermon to talk about that. We're not talking about trying to find a flaw in your character and going and, you know, but we're talking about if you have a friend that's having an affair and it's hurting that family, you, you go and you park yourself in their driveway. You love them enough to, you go and you confront them. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about these things that, not a, that affect a whole group of people, a whole church. But don't judge the world on your standard of behavior for those who are outside of their faith. It's not your business, Paul says. Wow. That is mind-altering. If we had have gotten that back in 300 under Constantine, that we're not supposed to change the world by preaching at them or telling them they have to be Christians or they have to do this, if we had have done that with love and with grace instead, the whole history of our world would be different. It's phenomenal to me. Paul says, 
Why would I expect people who have never signed on to be Jesus followers, why would I expect them to behave by the standards God has set for me? Why, why, why? Why would you expect the world, the world of politics, the world of finances, that your neighbors, why would you ever expect them to, to, to live at the same level of moral and ethics that you do when they've never signed off on that? They've never signed off on Scripture. They've never signed off on Jesus. To judge them is not going to help anyone. It's going to drive them further away. But you love them in such a way you live and you love and you die in such a way that they say, wow, that's what I want. It's not by shaming them or pointing your finger at them or condemning them. It's saying, man, I want that because look at what Jesus has done in that marriage. Look at what Jesus has done in those teenagers. Back at Hope, we used to have a phrase, I think David used it here sometimes too, that uh, no perfect people allowed. We took that very seriously because we wanted to welcome every person who wanted to walk through our church doors. And we weren't asking them to conform to the way we expect them to live. We weren't asking them to to be the way we were. We were asking them simply to be open, have their hearts and their minds open to one question. What's it going to take for you to take one step closer to Jesus? Maybe for them that's going from an atheist to an agnostic. Or going from being an agnostic to wondering, well, maybe there is something about this God thing. For some of them, it was about saying, you know, the church, I had a bad experience with the church 40 years ago, but I'm going to give it another try. I mean, it could be any. What is the one thing that you can do to take one step closer to Jesus? Don't expect non-disciples to have the same morality and ethics and convictions on sex and alcohol and money and everything else that you do. How foolish of me to judge those who have not signed on to Jesus' way and Jesus' standards. Never agreed to it. The church has been doing this for centuries. We've been doing it in politics. We've been doing it in government. We've been doing it in finances, in international affairs, in wars. We've always done that, and it's never, ever worked. The Bible says, we who are Jesus followers, we who are disciples, should love them in such a way that they say, I want to experience that. To look outside of the church to non-Jesus people and throw stones because they don't live like we do. There's something totally wrong with that. I mean, imagine, remember how Jesus handled the woman that was taken in adultery? She wasn't a follower of Jesus. She was a woman that was caught in the midst of adultery. Remember how Jesus handled her? He didn't condemn her. He didn't point his finger. He said, listen, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Listen, you know, listen, if you want to avoid this kind of thing, you can't, you know, you've got to have a different kind of life. He didn't condemn her. He didn't beat her. He loved her. He graced her. And he gave her some truth with gentleness and with love. That's why Jesus was easy on the sinners and hard on the Pharisees, the religious ones, the ones who said, we have signed off on all of these things. Jesus said, no, it's about one thing. See how they love one another. They expected Jesus' followers to believe like Jesus' followers. But in the early church, they did not judge the outside world. Instead, they loved them. They loved them. God has given us something great to do and experience, brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's Jesus. And I guess if I were to 
conclude this message with one phrase that maybe will help you remember this. It's something, and I know it's corny and it's goofy, but you'll remember it because it is corny and goofy. Judge the believing, not the heathen. Okay, I know that's corny and goofy, but when you go home, you'll remember that. You may not remember anything else. Judge the believing, not the heathen. I had two premarital couples that came to my office a couple of years ago. One, the couple was two non-believers, but they were kind of hungry and searching. So I, I would always uh, consider marrying two non-believers, not a non-believer and a believer, but two non-believers. And then I also had, then I had two believers that came for premarital, doing almost the same time, uh, same time frame. And so um, I, I handled those things completely differently. Uh, the two believers that came to me, the two disciples, um, uh, they were living together. And I said, Let, let's look at what God has said about sex before marriage. Let's, let's look at that. Let's look at the scriptures. I said, if you wanted God's best, you know, you need to change your direction and, and go a different way. In other words, I was showing them some real judgment in a loving way, of course, but it wasn't me. It was Jesus teaching. Jesus says, this is the best for you. If you want the best for you, here's how you live. So I did that teaching and they made a decision to uh, live apart until their wedding and, and God has blessed them since then. But this other couple, they also lived together. But you know what? We didn't really talk about that. I mean, they would ask me questions. Well, what, is, what, are, what, are, what, are, what do Christians believe about this and that? And what I'd answer their questions, but I didn't tell them they needed to live apart. I didn't tell them they needed to do something. They hadn't signed off on any of this. And somehow, someway, by the Spirit of God, that couple started coming to our church. They felt no condemnation, no judgment. And guess what? They both came to Christ, and they're both now serving that church as leaders of the church. The point that Paul is making is judge the heathen, the believing and not the heathen, right? Now, when you look at both of these ways of dealing with people, you have to say, man, um, the world is looking at you. The world is looking at us. And if we want to win them for Jesus, we don't need to condemn them. You know, many of them already feel condemned. They already feel like there's something wrong. But what they need from us is a genuine love and grace that's real and palpable. The kind of thing that we're going to do on G-City Sunday the kind of thing we're going, we're going out and we're going to offer many, many cups of cold water in the name of Jesus. Now you say, well, we didn't see anybody come to Christ today. Oh, that's okay. But we gave the cup of cold water to 100, 200, 300 people that day and we did it with the love of Jesus and we'll let the Holy Spirit do the rest, right? We'll do our part. We'll love them. We're not going to condemn them. We're not going to shame the homeless. We're going to love them and, and then see what God does. The world doesn't need to be coerced. The world doesn't need to be condemned. They need to be loved. This is how the West was won. This is how the world was won. Christ followers all over Asia and Europe and soon throughout the whole Roman Empire and throughout the other continents as well to love one another, to love one another in such a way that they say, this is what I want. Come and see a community of followers like that. Would you bow your heads with me as we close? Father, I just pray now that uh, your spirit would move among us as a people. Lord, it's so easy to look out at the world and say, oh, those people are so bad and they're so this and they're so that and I don't like them and they're this and that. But Lord, you have called us to be Jesus, 
in their lives. You've called us to love them. You've called us to live and to love and to speak and to even die in such a way that they say, oh, that's what I want. I want that. That's what will make a difference in my life. So, Father, this is our prayer for each and every one of us. Lord, many of us have signed off on this three-month commitment to love each other in the same way that you have loved us. Especially, Lord, this week, help us to do that to those who are outside the church, those who are not followers of Jesus, those who have not signed off on his truth. Help us to love them in a beautiful way. Now, Father, as we continue our worship, we will offer ourselves to you in this act of communion. Communing with you and communing with one another. Remembering the sacrifice that you made for us on the cross. Remembering that Jesus shed his blood and allowed his body to be broken that we might be able to live and love and speak and yes, sometimes even die for the cause of Jesus. Lord, may we receive this gift with grateful hearts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.